Good afternoon. I'm Rachel Rosenblum. I teach at Northeastern University School of Law, and I'm here today uh, with Dolores Huerta. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that uh, there's a lot of demands on your time. No, thank you for inviting me. Um, so uh, I think many people who are watching this video or listening to the podcast will be very familiar with your work. But uh, just in case, for those who aren't, um, I'm just going to say a couple of, of brief things about, about you. And um, uh, Dolores Huerta was uh, one of the co-founders, uh, along with Cesar Chavez, of the uh, National Farm Workers Association and later the United Farm Workers, uh, and one of the principal architects of the UFW's long-running uh, grape boycott. And uh, in the 1980s and 90s, she became uh, involved in the feminist movement with the Feminist Majority Foundation and other organizations. Uh, and in 2002, she founded the Dolores Huerta Foundation, which engages in community organizing and uh, training among low-income communities in California. And I'm leaving out a lot of things because we'd be here all day if I if I uh, described all your accomplishments, but um, that's the brief version. Uh, and we're speaking today as part of the Ask a Feminist series that uh, the Journal Signs is doing. And our topic today is gender and immigrants' rights. So thanks again for joining us. Good timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to start with an issue that has been in the news a lot lately, which is uh, sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, your roots are in the labor movement. You spent many, many years working with farm workers, uh, including with many women farm workers. What's your perspective on the, the Me Too movement and the, the sudden attention uh, in, the, in the media and in society to sexual harassment issues in the workplace? Well, I think it's an outgrowth of the times that we're living in right now. I think uh, with the, a lot of the uh, statements that number 45 made about the way that he uh, treated women or objectified women and, and sexually assaulted women, basically, and uh, the reaction to that with the women's marches, both the one uh, last year and this year. And I think this kind of set the groundwork for women to become so enraged that uh, they decided to start speaking out. And, and you know, since they did start in Hollywood, of course, it got so much media attention that, uh, and when women in Hollywood uh, who have so much to, they have so much at stake uh, when they come out the way that they did and, and outed the people that had sexually harassed them, I just think that that was the inspiration for so many other women to do the same. And when you talk about sexual harassment, then you go on to the next level and you talk about equal pay, uh, equal treatment, you know, promotions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's what has been kind of the, the fuel, you might say, that kind of energized uh, the, the women in the United States of America and all over the world, because we know that this was not limited to the U.S., but that it sparked uh, just uh, uh, this, uh, this deep-seated anger that has been just fuming and festering in so many women that, you know, just said, okay, time's up. We just got to get out there and make our thoughts known. Mm-hmm. Right, and you mentioned that you know the the focus initially was on Hollywood, um, and that always brings a lot of attention to things, right? As an organizer, you sort of think, how, how do you get those people to 
to speak out on your issues. And and uh, this is an issue that you know they they spoke out on uh, right from the get go. Um, so I'm wondering about it kind of as a broader movement because a lot of the initial attention was to Hollywood actresses um, or to people, women in kind of high, highly paid, prominent positions, executives in Silicon Valley, that sort of thing. Um, what do you see as the potential uh, of this movement for women who are in low wage jobs, women who are working, you know, cleaning hotel rooms, uh, working in the fields, many immigrant women doing those kinds of jobs? Well, I think it kind of uh, gives them kind of the inspiration that they can also come up. And I think attached to that, there's got to be a lot of uh, information that has to be delivered to uh, working women and to immigrant women because um, they don't have that kind of visibility uh, and, and they don't have this, the support system that women, uh, you might say women that are in the higher economic levels of our society, uh, they, they have more protections. You know, they have attorneys, they have people that can uh, really support them when someone comes after them and of course what working women do not have that type of a support unless they happen to be a labor in a labor union otherwise they're, they're still very vulnerable um, and so i think a lot of, uh, it's up to us also to, to disseminate information to women uh, to let them know where they can go where they can make their complaints uh, where they can be protected when they do make their complaints and uh, so while i think it, it's a, a big a big giant leap you might say uh into the future for women then we have to still think about all of those women uh, who are, are vulnerable, you know, or because of their jobs and maybe because with farm workers, if, you know, because people work in, as, as families and it makes the whole family vulnerable in terms of uh, be, being fired or some kind of retaliation taken against them. So I think we have to be cognizant of that and uh, do whatever we can in our communities to let women out there know, yes, there is a place where you can report this and it can be confidential and you can be protected. Could you talk a little bit about the issues that you saw back in the your days with the UFW in terms of sexual harassment uh, uh, that women faced in the fields? Well, as you know, I'm 87 years old, <laughs> so I can just say, really, I think honestly, I think uh, uh, the majority of women my age, uh, you know, had to face sexual harassment in, in all areas of life, and 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 especially on the workplace. Uh, but uh, mm -hmm. there were really no laws to protect us and. So we just had to figure out a way, ways so that we could, we could protect ourselves. So uh, to see this happening now uh, at the level that it's happening, it's just, oh my God, it's it's almost like uh, unbelievable. And and I think a lot of us are just so grateful uh, that it is happening, that women are speaking up and, and, and young women also. So it's it's really, it's it's really great. Yeah, I was really struck by the, that open letter from farm workers, from women farm workers two Hollywood actresses, um, you know, in I think back in November, because this, you know, this issue started with, uh, or the the kind of the attention to it started with uh, the Harvey Weinstein uh, allegations and all of the kind of Hollywood focus. And there was a march in Hollywood and, and there was this open letter from the farm workers saying, you know, we, we stand in solidarity with you. We understand what you're going through. And usually it's kind of the other way around. I was, and I noticed when Time's Up was launched, uh, earlier this month in the opening statement, I mean, right there, right at the beginning of the statement, but by all these people like Meryl Streep, you know, it, the first thing that's in that statement is that they were inspired by that letter and, and that they're, you know, and sort of acknowledging how much these issues cut across class. And um, so uh, 
do you, do you think in terms of initiatives like Time Up, Time's Up, they'll really kind of translate into um, real changes in the lives of, of low-wage workers? Well, I think in, in the lives of all women, but I think we as women have to stand up and make sure uh, that uh, the, this wave of energy doesn't end, that it, it, that it goes deeper, and that we make sure that in our workplaces where we work or in the areas where we uh, can have influence, that we make sure uh, that uh, you know the discussion continues, but not only that, uh, but that women are not afraid to speak up, but also to know that when they do speak up, they can be protected. I mean, as you know, uh, in our state legislatures all over the country, uh, many of the state legislatures had kind of rules in the legislature to protect the men uh, that were doing the harassing instead of protecting the women. And so that's another area where I think that we have to really uh, look and, and kind of examine every single state legislature. Okay, what do your rules look like? Uh, because if it doesn't start at the highest offices like the Congress and the Senate and, and our state legislatures, uh, you know, it gives us a little hope for, for, for what we can do uh, below that level. And so, uh, yeah, but I think it's up to women, it's up to women to start asking the questions. Uh, you know, we've got the momentum right now, we've got the energy, but we can't let it die down. And I, I think that's what really worries me sometimes when you have some real um, public uh, display uh, of, uh, you know, of energy from people that want to change things. Uh, but then they think that the message is the end, and the message is not the end, the message is the beginning. Yeah. So you like an organizer. <laughs> yeah, it's a long-term, it's, it, it's a long-term effort, right? Absolutely. Um, so, uh, I wanted to now uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, what's going on in terms of immigrant rights organizing in this country. And um, when you were getting started as an organizer, there were very few women uh, in leadership positions in the labor movement or in, in really any movement. And your work was groundbreaking um, in well, part. I want to challenge that. that. I want to challenge yeah, Okay. Because I know we say that, and we, and we always say, well, like in history, you don't see a lot of women. But actually, you look at every single movement, you know, whether it be the labor movement, you think of the Garment Workers Union, you know, the strikes that they had in New York City, for instance, and it was all women-led. And uh, so in all of these different movements that we have, you have a lot of women that are in leadership, and they're on the front line. The problem is when the history gets written, they only recognize the men. And same thing with the Civil Rights Movement. You had a lot of women besides. Rosa Parks, you know, Dorothy Cotton, you had many other women that were out there in the front line. And yet when the books get written, they, they only focus on the men. And so I think we have to kind of uh, challenge the way that history is written to make sure that the women are included. And in the labor movement also, you know, you've, you've had women in the front lines and sometimes they get overlooked. I like to say that when the dust settles and you institutionalize a movement, you know, when you start putting the positions of, of, of power and they get uh, either voted in or delegated or whatever, uh, then that's where the women get, you know, they, they kind of drop off, they, they drop off the radar, then they're not included in the power structure of that organization. Well, that's a point well taken. So thank you for that, for for uh, for pointing that out to me. You're absolutely right. Um, but nevertheless, I would say that at the time that you were organizing, there were very few women who were in official positions of, of power of the sort you had, of vice president of the UFW. And um, what I, what I'm struck by when I look out, for example, at um, at the undocumented, you know, the Dreamer uh, movement today, is is how many women uh, are are really young young women are really prominent in that in that movement, um, and how many uh, people who identify as LGBTQ, and 
I'm just wondering if um, if you have thoughts on kind of how those issues have moved in 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 over the course of your lifetime of the the kind of evolution of of gender and uh, sexuality issues within the labor movement, within immigrant rights, or within kind of progressive organizing more generally. I, I've I've read your recollections of of sitting there and and you know copying down sexist or keeping note of how many sexist comments were made uh, during during meetings and that kind of thing. Uh, do you think there's been some some positive change on that front? Uh, I think that I think that there has. I think it's kind of hard to measure it uh, because I think in many instances uh, women are still hesitant to bring up. Uh, you know, say you have a, an open meeting with all of your boss or the partners in the organization, and sometimes women hear those sexist remarks or they hear women uh, put getting put down, uh, but they. Uh, you just have don't haven't found the courage or can't find the courage to speak up uh, when that happens. And uh, but I think that what's happening now is, is just giving women uh, giving women uh, the feeling that they can actually speak up uh, when these things are happening. And sometimes we don't have the vocabulary either, you know, to say to someone, you know, you, you just made a sexist remark or or you know that really is on the fringe here of sexual harassment uh, because mm -hmm. you know we have had this good old boy network for so long and. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's all we have to uh, enable women uh, to be able to to be able to speak up. So while we see it really strong on the national level, it's kind of hard to know what's happening in, in some little part of town. Right? Uh, and I think we can actually, as my daughter says, uh, free two birds from one cage. <laughs> and uh, that is, uh, uh, we can. We, I think we, in terms of digging down and making permanent change, uh, that we do have the structure to do that in our society, and that's our educational structure. But we have to really uh, look at all the different levels of our educational structure and start changing the way that we teach women. Uh, we have to teach women to be strong. We have to teach women that they do not have to be victims, uh, that mm -hmm. they can stand up, that they can uh, be leaders, that they can be assertive, and that they don't have to hold back. Uh, but it's going to take a lot of, uh, of teaching at every level, starting with the pre-K level, uh, to mm -hmm. say, to inculcate young girls yes you are equal to the young man sitting next to you in your classroom to the boy sitting next to you uh, because we know that even when i speak oftentimes i'll even with like elementary school children uh, and i'll say to them you know that boys and girls are equal and the boys will say no and the girls of course will smile and the clap so it starts at that level so i think that that's what we have to start thinking about and the same thing with racism you know we have to start uh, teaching uh, at the pre-kindergarten level to, to children for the contributions of the people of color uh, to build our country in the United States of America and to build our world, you know, so that we can get rid of racism and we can get, get rid of misogyny and homophobia. But it's got to start when the kids are really, really young. And so, you know, people shouldn't have to wait to get to college to, to get women's studies or ethnic studies, you know, or labor studies for that matter. And I think that's got to be uh, if we think about the work ahead of us, I think that's where we have to start. Change the content of our educational system, train teachers, give them the materials. I think materials are already out there. We just have to uh, you know, show people how they can access those materials and start saying, we're gonna, we want to make a permanent change. This is not just about one march that women, you know, <laughs> women participate in. It's about making permanent change to make sure that women, that girls are not objectified, that they're not just sex objects, that they're equal to men in our society, and that they get the same resources as men do for their education, 
uh, for their jobs, you know, for, for early childcare, uh, so that every woman can be uh, active in civil life and, and, and in civic engagement. Mm -hmm. So where did you learn those lessons? Because clearly you learned those at an early age. <laughs> where did they come from in your own life? I was very fortunate because I was raised by my mother. She divorced my father. Thank goodness, because I, I don't know what my life would have been like had, I, had my father been in my life. Because uh, my mother and my parents divorced when I was very, very young. I think I was like like two years old or something like that. And I did live with my father from time to time. Uh, but uh, I mean, no comparison. My mother was just such a dominant figure. My dad was, well, I wouldn't say he was a chauvinist, but he was a very handsome man. Uh, a lot of women were attracted to him. <laughs> And uh, he was married like six times or something like that. <laughs> so, and uh, you know, but but I, he was. And my mother divorced him because uh, he was uh, he, he he was abusive to her. And so she had the you know, the courage back then, way back then in the 30s, to, to divorce my 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 dad. And she divorced my stepfather also. So we had, it's kind of a tra tradition in our family that we divorce one than one more than one. But again, you know, for women to be able to to leave their husbands and and she was a businesswoman, you know. And so, and I think she was that she was my example of of, of being strong. And mm -hmm. always, she would always say to me, "Don't forget to speak. Like, always have the courage to speak out, even when you think you might say the wrong thing, because you can always correct it. But you know, you've got to be able to uh, to let people know what you think, especially let them know what your ideas are. Uh -huh. so, and I, I think a lot of women we just remain silent because we're afraid we're going to be criticized. And, mm hmm. So we have, we have to figure out how we implant that courage. And I think those uh, those seeds of courage need to be uh, put into young women uh, when they're in school. And we forget about this nonsense that Prince Charming is going to come by and give you a kiss and wake you up and you're going to live happily ever after, which we know is just such a, such a falsehood and such a myth. Mm -hmm. um, so I, coming back now uh, to the to the feminist movement, which you've been involved with for many years. And we've also been talking about all these other issues. Um, we're talking a little bit about immigrant rights and um, you know, you, you've alluded to a bunch of other issues and I know you work, uh, your foundation works on a lot of issues. You're, you kind of epitomize uh, multi-issue organizing. So I wanted to ask you about intersectionality, which is really a, you know, a word you hear a lot these days within feminist organizing. Um, and you, you know, you worked, you came at to feminism after many years in the labor movement. Um, your foundation works on uh, criminal justice, school to, to prison pipeline issues and environmental issues and economic justice issues. Uh, how does your feminism uh, shape your approach to all those issues? And how do how does your involvement in all those issues shape your feminism? Well, I think, as I said, my mother was a feminist and um... I always saw, you know, I always saw women in terms of uh, uh, that not only the the uh, necessity for women to be in power. I think I understood all of the issues of feminism except one, and that was the right to abortion. Mm -hmm. And that's because of my Catholic upbringing. And you know, when I, you know, when you start going to, to church with your little kid, <laughs> and and you hear everything that the priests have to say, and then uh, you, you kind of get tainted. I think with it, with with those those uh, I would call them in a way false values. And so to be able to uh, change uh, my mind on that issue, it, it was, I have to say, it was a struggle. It was a struggle. You know, I have 11 kids, you know, so you can see <laughs> where my head was at. And uh, 
so that that was that was difficult for me. But in a way, I'm glad I went through that because then it helps me uh, to be able to uh, uh, transfer that that transition to other women, especially to Latina women, to make them understand that this is a basic right that women need to have, and uh, access to abortion that this is a human right that women need to have because if you cannot have uh, control over your own body, it's very hard to control anything else. Mm-hmm. And, but it was difficult. But I think in other respects, I did consider myself a feminist except for that one issue, which I know is a basic issue to be called a feminist. Mm-hmm. And I have to say with Eleanor Smeal and Gloria Steinem, both of uh, two women that I really respect and treasure uh, that uh, got me to come to that to, to that. To that idea that abortion and women's uh, access to abortion is a human right. Mm-hmm. People evolve over time, right? Movements evolve uh, over time. Uh, and actually, so another thing that's on my mind in, on that subject of kind of evolving over time, um, not to get into things that happened, you know, in the distant past, but I think it's safe to say uh, that the labor movement has evolved uh, a lot on the issue of undocumented immigrants um, from a kind of a protectionist um, view to a more, a much more supportive uh, view. Well, I have to say this, so, and I think sometimes the labor movement gets a, gets a, a, a bad rap on that because uh, back in 1986, uh, when I was working on the amnesty bill uh, mm-hmm. to get undocumented people to become uh, to get their legalization status in the United States, uh, the labor movement was very supportive. There were certain labor unions uh, like SCIU, AFSCME, et cetera, uh, mm-hmm. that were very, very supportive. Uh, you're right, it has evolved, but I think it's been evolving, not just recently, but it's been evolving over the last couple of decades. Right, it has been. I mean, and and um, and I think, I mean, there's sort of different kinds of evolution. And if you look at the labor movement, there's the sort of evolving from being a, from a more protectionist stance to a more, supportive stance. And then if you look at uh, the feminist movement, what I see is kind of evolving from not paying any attention to those kinds of issues to paying quite a bit. When I go to a women's march now, you know, you see Do- you see signs for DACA and the DREAM Act, and you see all these things. In the 90s, you'd go to a, a women's march and you'd, it would just be a sea of pro-choice signs. It was kind of a, you know, single issue. Um, and I so, think we have, we have to give credit to the dreamers for doing that uh because the dreamers you know came out and they were very visible uh, they organized uh, on a nation, national level uh to get people to support them to get the dream act in the first place and uh, all of the immigrants rights organizations and and again when we talk about the labor movement remember that there's like labor is composed of so many different organizations so you had some organizations like unite here for instance the garment workers union they were in the forefront of the immigrants' rights fight uh, like 20 years ago. Uh, organizations like the Laborers Union, uh, the um, SCIU, Service Employees International Union, the teachers, you know, they were they were kind of in the forefront of fighting for the immigrant rights movement. And mm-hmm. you had some of the more traditional, uh, the building trades were maybe a little bit more, uh, you might say, late to the game, you know, late to the party. But but uh, I would say that generally. The labor movement has been, again, on on the policy level, they've been very supportive. Mm-hmm. I used to be a labor a union fed labor lawyer, so I, I've experienced some of those those differences uh, between unions about about certain issues like that. Um, but just in terms of the present day, I guess what um, I'd just love to hear your thoughts on 
on what the role of undocumented immigrants is now, right now, in kind of in the the, the landscape of social justice organizing in the United States. Well, I think the immigrant rights movement is a, a really uh, major part of the activism that is taking place right now, and uh, and and in bringing groups together, as you said. When you were in the women's march, you saw signs that were supporting immigrants' rights also in DACA. And so I think that they have probably been kind of the glue that has created this intersectionality that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So um, I think my final question to you has to do with the times that we are living through now, the complicated uh, times that we're living through now. We've got a white nationalist in the, the White House who's attacking immigrants, who's attacking women, who's attacking Muslims, who's attacking everyone, basically. Um, and I, I teach at a law school, so I've got a lot of my students are in their 20s there, and we have many activist students, and, you know, they're having a hard time coping, right? This is sort of a new thing to them, to have, to have uh, this kind of a, I mean, in some ways, it's a new thing for all of us, but I think I'm just curious. You, you you've lived through so much. I mean, you you know you lived through McCarthyism and Nixon and Reagan and you know good times, bad times. Uh, what's your what do you say to younger activists um, about kind of how to get through moments like this and and how to keep how to sustain oneself? Well, as an organizer, I see this as a great organizing opportunity <laughs> because when uh, people are challenged that we are being challenged right now, then I think it really uh, gives people the motivation to get involved. They have been involved before, and this is a time to do it uh, because uh, number 45 is attacking so many people, so many. So that I think that really gives us a chance to say, okay, we've got to stand up, not only for ourselves, but for uh, these other brothers and sisters and these other movements that are also under attack. So, um, but I think, and I'm glad you, we were talking a little bit more about labor because uh, at the end of the day, Hopefully we can keep Roe versus Wade. Um, uh, we will get some kind of, a, I think the DACA students are going to be saved according to the latest news today. Hopefully it doesn't change tomorrow. Right, it's complicated, uh, yeah. You know, but I think that the two issues that we have to always include when we talk about intersectionality and the work that we do, again, besides the civil rights issues, criminal justice issues, are, are of course the environmental issues uh, mm -hmm. to make sure that they're always, you know, a kind of, uh, converge with the other work that we do uh, so that you know we realize that we have to do something to stop global warming and uh, then the other thing I'm going to say are economic issues and I think that's the area where, where number 45 is going to try to trick people like he just did with the tax reform bill you know making it very public that the, so these people got a thousand dollar bonus <laughs> by the way one of my grandsons was one of those because he works for the Bank of America um, but, but he will, my grandson realizes that that uh, that that thousand uh, dollars is just kind of a little buy-off where they will, you know, because they're save they're giving away millions, but they're going to save billions of dollars when it comes to the taxes that they're supposed to be paying. So we can't take the economic issues off of the table. We've got to keep got to keep those in front of us because at the same time that uh, you know Wall Street is having a windfall, we see more people that are homeless. We see rents that are going to be rising. We see gentrification and where people don't have a place to live, and so. When we talk about this intersectionality, let's keep the economic issues always as part of that conversation uh, to make sure that we don't forget that. That we don't forget about people that are having to work two jobs to be able to uh, pay rent and make a living and just to get put food on the table. And uh, mm -hmm. 
and that we get involved. And in California, by the way, uh, we're going to be doing a, 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 a proposition on the ballot uh, to make commercial properties pay their fair share of taxes. It's called the Make It Fair campaign. Mm -hmm. so, and, and at the bottom of all of this, of course, is the vote. And I'm glad I'm sitting behind you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Tell us about the, the yeah, background. Well, Oh, with, with our foundation, the Dolores Fletcher Foundation, of course, this is part of the work that we do is to make sure that people get out there and register to vote. We do canvassing, we do phone banking. I'm actually sitting in our phone bank room right now. And we do this as part of a, a, a statewide organization called a California Calls. Okay. And uh, we do canvassing and phone banking uh, to make and voter registration uh, to make sure that people vote. And we're going to be doing a massive campaign, of course, here in California. But we want to invite people in these other states like Texas and, you know, register to vote. And I know it's difficult for people to register. They make it very hard for people to register to vote. But find a way to do that. Uh, because the, and, that, and this is what I'm saying, is our only hope right now for 2018 is to build our own wall in the Congress of progressive congressional leaders that will stop all of the stuff that's coming out of the White House, all of the negative stuff that's coming out of the White House. And and uh, we shouldn't leave our, our labor brothers and sisters behind, you know, organized labor. So I know our agenda is a, a full one, uh, but I think if we keep supporting each other that we will be able to get a lot of our agenda uh, through. And one thing I like to remind people, like, and I like to say to people, you missed the 60s, well, they're back. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But, but, but in the 60s and the 70s, and you know, when all of these organizations were being just uh, beginning, you might say they were uh, just in the birthing stages, you know, the Green Movement, the LGBT Movement, uh, the second wave of the Women's Movement, the, uh, the Chicano Latino Civil Rights Movement, these were all uh, be, just uh, being born. But guess what? We're all institutionalized now. Mm -hmm. we, and we lived through the 60s and came out of the 60s and the 70s we were a lot stronger and we were able to change uh, the culture and the policies of the United States of America. And you know what? I think when we come out of this era that we're living in right now, we're going to have the same thing's going to happen because I have so many more people who have become engaged and are becoming involved in movement building and fighting for these causes that we've been talking about today. So I think we're going to come out stronger. And as I go around, you know, there's a film uh, about myself called Dolores that Carlos Santana produced. And uh, I've been following it around all over the country. And, uh, I and I do that basically to just implore people, please get involved, please register to vote, please go out there and volunteer uh, on campaigns to get other people out to vote. And, uh, and then I've been also quoting the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, who said, they can cut all the flowers, but they can't hold back the spring. They can cut all the flowers, but they can't hold back the spring. So I think we are the spring that's gonna come back with full force with many flowers of justice that are going to be blooming, and uh, uh, we will we will smell victory at the end of this. You know, when we get through this stage, because then we see all of the things that need to be corrected that are now so defined and so visible. Uh, and you know, as a person of color and as women, you know, we all live through this uh, sexual harassment as part of our lives, and uh, with people of color, these uh, discrimination and microaggressions that you live with every single day. So uh, whatever we can do now in this chaotic stage that we're in uh, to be able to organize to change it, uh, we have to do it. And I think we will we will come out ahead. What I've been doing is I'm, I'm going around speaking to audiences. I say, who's got the power? And I want everybody to say, we've got the power. 
who's got the power? We've got the power. What kind of power? People power, you know? And then we say, can we go out there and organize? We say, yes, we can. Si se puede. And you are, of course, the originator of that term. We have that term because of you. And uh, it's amazing, you know, that, that term, what would, where would we be without it, right? I mean, it's, it's a rallying cry for so many people now, every, every demonstration I go to, and uh, we have you to thank for that. You're welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. On that note, I think that's what I'm gonna, I'm gonna show that, that uh, clip of, of you saying that to my students every time they come to me and say, you know, it's all, they're losing hope because uh, uh, that was certainly yeah, ask, ask, ask them also to, to and you probably already do this, but you know, like Michael Moore says, uh, there's three things you should do uh, when you wake up in the morning, wash your face, brush your teeth, and call your congressperson, okay? So, <laughs> so ask your students to, to please call a congressperson uh, to demand that they vote on a clean DACA bill uh, or and to thank those senators that have stood up for the DACA students. And you know, we can make that part of our daily ritual uh, to call our congressperson on on some pending legislation and 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 I also ask them to get involved as they possibly can get involved in a campaign because I believe that knocking on doors talking to people or even phone banking you know that gives them kind of uh, the emotional fortitude I call it organizing 101 this is the way I got started in organizing you know, by going out there and talking to people door to door imploring them to please uh, vote and I think that kind of gave me the uh, emotional fortitude that I needed to continue to be an organizer. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for for joining us today. It's really welcome. wonderful. The yeah. film's going to be on public land on the PBS, the Independent Lens, on March 27th. So March 27th. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you very much.